As we begin, I want to tell you one of the greatest gifts you are ever going to give is the gift of legacy, the legacy of your life. It's kind of like a handprint. Maybe you've done this. You got like a patio, you poured some concrete and you, everybody got out there and mom, dad, and you put your handprint out there. Kids, maybe your dog, you know, maybe the neighbor's cat got in there and you put out this handprint there and it's like it's there forever. And it's really cool to see that. I think the folks that work for the city aren't as exactly enamored when they see that in the concrete they've played and placed in the sidewalks and those things happen. But nonetheless, that handprint is there. And I want you to know that you are leaving a legacy. Even as we speak, you are leaving a legacy in the lives of people. And really, you kind of leave a legacy in the various seasons of your life and the various aspects of your life. Whether you're in junior high or high school or at work or with your family, certainly in our church, in our community, uh, you leave a legacy. Uh, years ago when I was in Portland, Oregon, uh, working in the insurance world, I was involved in student ministries, and uh, we had a guy by the name of Big Ben Tate. He was 6'5". He was a force to be reckoned with on the basketball court, but really where he left his imprint was his character. I mean, this guy was, as a high school kid, very secure in his identity in Christ. He was unashamed of the gospel. He had character. He had the ability to connect with a wide spectrum of people. He was unenamored by just being kind of like the cool guy. He actually lived out his faith. And it was very interesting, the effect that Ben had. I mean, people were looking up to him, physically, of course, but they kept looking up to him because of who he was. Even after Ben graduated and went on to college, people kept still referring to Ben because of the legacy that he left. And I want you to know that you're leaving a legacy. If you're a parent or you're a grandparent at home, at school, at this present time, you're leaving a legacy. Whether you're a, a mom that is investing and praying in your kids or you're an absent dad or you're a student that's just running wild and creating havoc... Uh, I want you to know that you're leaving a legacy at your work. People, when they hear your name, they think of a certain image. You are known for whatever it is. And I'd like to ask you the question, what kind of legacy are you leaving? When we come to the book of 2 Timothy, we see just how important legacy is. Remember how the book began in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5? Paul says, listen, your mother and your grandmother, Timothy have left a legacy in your life. Remember that? He says, For I am mindful, verse 5, of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. You've got a legacy. Your mother, your grandmother. Timothy, you want to carry it on as well. And what Paul is doing in the book of 2 Timothy is kind of like one final handprint. Literally, the fingerprints of his life are being placed upon Timothy, especially you see this in these final verses. You're going to find that in these final verses, shortly before the Apostle Paul is executed, he gives three factors that will actually lead to the legacy of a person's life. And I'd like to just ask you, what is the legacy that you are leaving? Right now, at this present time. And I want to show you from the text here three factors that will shape a Christian's legacy. And the first one, we looked at it last week in verses 6 through 8 in chapter 4. The priorities of your life will in many respects dictate the legacy that you leave. 
Last week, we took a look at this. What does it look like to be a Christ-centered individual and to walk with God for a lifetime? You need to understand that the convictions that you hold guide the life that you live. Your convictions that hold you mold you. And so if you want to find out what does it look like to walk with joy with Jesus for a lifetime, look at the priorities that Paul was living with. Look at verse 6. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. So Paul uses imagery that he used in the book of Philippians. It's imagery that comes directly out of the Old Testament sacrificial system. He says, I see myself as a drink offering. So after a burnt offering or a grain offering, what would happen is the worshiper would come and he would literally pour out wine onto the sacrifice as an expression that says, this worshiper finds joy in the offering. I pour this out as an expression that to worship you, Yahweh, the living God, it's a joy. It's a drink offering. And that's what Paul is saying. Listen, I see my life since I've come to know Christ as just being poured out for the glory of God. And it is a joy to do so. And I understand that my departure is soon to come. You and I, we're pouring out our life. The question is, for who and for what purpose? Paul is saying, my priority is this. It's Jesus Christ. And if you want to see, what does this look like? Look at verse 7. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. I have everything that the Lord has entrusted me to. It is a fight to sometimes to face the hardships and the hostilities of life and the difficulties and the challenges. And yet, I have continued on to the fight. I have finished the course. I mean, if you're a runner, you know that at times it is extremely difficult, especially in the middle of the race. And when things are not going well and your body is breaking down. But to think of it, to say at the end of your life, I actually finished the course that God gave me to run. I bloomed where I was planted my current circumstances. And I have kept the faith. I held on to Jesus specifically because he held on to me. How powerful is this? And if you want to see how in the world do you live like that, verse 8 is your key. You might want to put a mark by it. You see, his present priorities governed his future focus. He says, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Here he's saying, the righteousness that I received when I believed in Christ, when Christ Jesus lived this perfect life, he accrued righteous, he, righteousness. And you and I receive this righteousness when we believe in Christ. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You receive it by faith, according to the book of Romans. And this present reality is going to have some sort of future demonstration. And Paul says, I cannot wait for the day when the Lord, the righteous judge, is actually going to award to me this crown of righteousness. This, like, it's crown, speaking of like a laurel wreath, wreath that would be like placed on a victor's head. Whether you be a military conqueror or an athlete. It's symbol victory. And Paul says, you know what? I am living for the future to be in the presence of the king, to rest on the laurels of Christ. It's my legacy. You and I have to learn to live past the dot. Life is like an eternal line. You want to live beyond just the here and now. You and I have to have a means of recalibrating, refocusing. This world 
Life itself is like gravity. It just pulls us down and wears us down. Our problems, our troubles. And what happens is we just get focused on the here and now and all of our troubles and problems. We forget about Jesus and the glory to come. And that's why he says, this is my priority. This is my legacy to live for the future glory to be with Jesus yourself. Your life is going to be determined by who or what you are living for. If you want true north in your life, that's why these verses are so precious. They just keep reorienting you back upon Jesus. It shows you the importance of living out your values and having a personal mission. It keeps you back on course. And that's what Paul is saying. Do you want to understand you're leaving a legacy? If, it, if you want a legacy of a Christ-centered life, if that is something you're interested in, these are your verses. Well, let me tell you the factors that are going to shape a Christian's legacy. And we looked at these last week. First of all, it's the priorities of your life. But I want you to notice what we're going to begin today, like beginning in verse 9. It is the people that you know. Remember this. The people that you know influence the direction that you will grow. The people that you know will influence the direction in which you will grow. Those relationships that you have shape you, mold you. That's why Paul says, you know, bad company corrupts good morals. You got folks that are taking you in the wrong direction. You're hanging with them. You got a toxic environment with your roommates or the crowd that you're running with. It is going to take you in the wrong direction. Some of us had to learn this the hard way. On the other hand, you got folks that love the Lord or growing in faith. Certainly they're not perfect, but they understand the power of forgiveness and the need of the Savior and the beauty of the gospel. It's going to rub off on you. You see, the people in your life, in many respects, are going to determine the legacy that you leave. And so that's why Paul begins to start listing people. And he begins with Timothy in verse 9. Make every effort to come to me soon. I want you to just hear just how deep that is. Paul referred to Timothy at the beginning of this letter as, um, you know, you're like my beloved son. Paul had had so much shared experience with Timothy. He had picked him up on a second missionary journey and invested in him as a young man. And this shows the beauty of mentoring. Remember when Jesus said, I want you to make disciples of all the nations. This is what it looks like to pour into the life of another, to help them grow strong and mature, fully mature in Christ. And what happens is you find that this relationship kind of just continues to blossom into this full friendship where you're like comrades. You like need each other. You're growing together. And that's what Paul has with Timothy. And that's why he refers to him as beloved son. He says, listen, I want you to know I need to see you. Like he talked about in Philippians, I have no one like you. You're a kindred spirit. You are God's man, and you are concerned for the welfare of his people. And our richest relationships, the ones that we share all life's experiences with, they have a way of molding us and shaping us, and they will be, in many respects, the legacy that we leave. Now, I want you to know something. Relationships can bring the greatest joys. They can also bring about the most difficult hardships. And I wish I could say, but you'll be exempt. But it will not be true. It wasn't even true for the Apostle Paul. Look at one of the more painful verses in the book of 2 Timothy. Look at verse 10. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me 
and gone to Thessalonica. Demas is such an interesting case study in the New Testament. He's actually referred to three different times. In the book of Philemon, he's listed with Mark, Aristarchus, and Luke as these fellow workers. I mean, he is one of the guys, actually one of the key guys. Paul is making all these critical investments. He lists them and says he is a fellow worker. In the book of Colossians, he's also referenced. But then when you come to the end of Paul's life, he writes this, and I want you to experience the full effect of the pain of desertion. For Demas, having loved this present world, he has deserted me. What happened with Demas? The things of this world were so alluring and so enamoring. Yes, he had been walking with Jesus. He had been involved in critical ministry. He was actively involved in the work of the Lord. But what happened is the priorities and the values and the ethics of this world, they just kind of kept wearing on him and, and becoming more and more attractive. And they, we don't know whether it would be power or money or pleasure, whatever the situation was, status. But idols creeped in where God once reigned. And all of a sudden, he became more enamored with the things of this world. And the things of Christ grew strangely dim to the place where he says, you know what? I'm just going to cool down this Christianity. Complacent Christianity seems to work with some folks and it'll certainly work with me because that way I can do what I want. And he says, according to what Paul writes, he deserted me. The things of this world, he loved them. When it says desert, it's the word to be utterly abandoned and to leave someone helpless and in a dire situation. It wasn't just that he walked away. It's that he left Paul cold when he needed him most. It was painful. It gripped him. And I want you to know something. If this can happen to a good guy like Demas, it could happen to you. Do you know that? It could happen to me. This isn't to say that Demas like. He became an apostate or that Demas was never saved. We, we don't know really exactly about that. It doesn't even say that Demas gave up his profession of faith. I mean, that kind of works with a lot of people yeah, when pressed. Like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but it has no bearing on your life. You may not even really know Jesus, but it works, especially in the South, to say that you're a Christian, right? We don't know what's going on with Demas. But I want you to see this and to use this as a warning. If you're just enamored by the things of this world, if what really gets your heart racing and what you're investing in and where you're putting your time and your money has nothing to do with Jesus, his glory, or his kingdom, you want to be careful. Because you do not want to replace your name where Demas is. And so you need to have a way of regularly calibrating your life to be renewed, to be refreshed. That is why the priority of being with God's people and worshiping and involved in Bible study, involved in disciple making, involved in serving is so critical because it keeps our eyes on Jesus and it keeps us dependent upon God. But for Demas, um, he abandoned all that. I'll tell you that if you love people, every once in a while you're going to get hurt and it is going to sting. You will find that the degree of depth of love that you shared with someone who walks away and abandons you is going to be the degree that it is going to hurt you and grieve you. It might even shock you. But uh, don't forget this. If Jesus can have Judas in his circle and travel with him and Judas abandon Jesus, don't be surprised 
on someone who you've loved deeply and invested in and had shared ministry experience, don't be surprised on occasion there might be someone that's just going to walk away from you. Having loved this present world, they will desert you. Maybe that's why Paul is writing verse 9 to Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon. See the value of friendships and relationships. It's, it's the legacy that we leave. Let me give you a couple of Proverbs that just underscore just how valuable relationships are. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. If you're going through adversity, you might want to find some brothers and sisters to help bolster your faith and encourage your heart. Or Proverbs 27, 17. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. So, Timothy, would you make every effort to come to me because I need you? And Themis is a painful reminder that at times you're going to be abandoned. But most folks will be loyal. Most folks, you're going to find that they're going to have friendships that endure. Yeah, every friendship and relationship is going to have its bumps and bruises. But beauty of Christ, there's forgiveness. We can move forward. And so he does. He just keeps naming some people. So, yeah, Demas deserted him. Went on to Thessalonica, but now he lists another guy. A guy by the name of Crescens. You see him in verse 10? He's gone on to Galatia. We don't know a lot about Crescens. We do know quite a bit about Galatia. It was an area, a province, in which Paul visited all three of his missionary journeys. There were quite a few established churches. Many of them were healthy. If you're going to go and encourage the saints in probably a stronghold of Christianity, you'll want to send a pretty good guy, and that's what you've got in Crescens, Crescens who is sent to where it's like now modern-day Turkey. And then he says, and Titus to Dalmatia. Dalmatia is where modern-day Yugoslavia is. When you come to Titus, you're coming to one of the great saints of the New Testament. Titus was a builder and an equipper. He was a trusted troubleshooter. When there was grave difficulty, Paul sent Titus. He was the kind of individual that you could count on. He wasn't scared of hard work. He wasn't phased by difficulty and challenge. He wasn't easily run off. Remember uh, in uh, the book of Titus, Paul actually, it's the next book. If you just kind of read 2 Timothy, next, voila, there's Titus. You find that he sent him to the island of Crete where things were chaotic and crazy. They desperately needed real leadership, real elders that would be involved in the work. And he says, listen, verse 5 in Titus chapter 1, I will send you there so that you will appoint elders so that the churches might be run in a healthy manner. And in order to do that kind of work in that kind of environment, you need someone you can trust. And that's why he sent Titus. They had such a deep, encouraging relationship. Uh, really interesting, like in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, if you want to just see just how hurt Paul was at different times, just how difficult life can be, 2 Corinthians will give you some insight into that. In chapter 7, Paul writes this, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. Does that sound like your week? Right? Man, everywhere I look, man, there were problems. And not only were there problems everywhere around me, but man, inside I had a war and I was losing was desperate i was fears within but the very next verse but god who comforts the depressed second corinthians 7 6 comforted us with the coming of titus don't get thrown off if you're a christian and you've been depressed others have been there i.e the apostle paul but did you see that god comforted the depressed with who titus believer 
Man, that shows you just the value of relationships and friendships. To encourage, to remind you of Jesus, to remind you of truth, to renew your hope. Paul is lifting his legacy, and your legacy is oftentimes going to be found in the people in your life. Look at this. Not only do you have Titus, who's sent to Dalmatia, but verse 11 is a pretty loaded verse. You may have skipped over it, but let me show you. Only Luke is with me. Luke is one of the most important men in the early church. I I tell you, it is hard to actually underscore just how important the beloved physician, as Paul refers to him in Colossians 4, is. Luke is picked up on the second missionary journey, and he basically spends the rest of Paul's life together with him. He is a physician. That means that he was there to care for Paul. Like, if you're in a situation where you're kind of getting beat up on a frequent basis, it's probably a good idea to have a doctor friend, specifically one who might travel with you. And that's what Paul had. He had a guy who could tend to his wounds, encourage his heart. And Luke, though he is a Gentile, meaning he comes from a non-Jewish background, this is a picture of just how tremendously God can use an individual. Luke is powerful. God uses him in extremely powerful ways. Let me ask you, who do you think wrote most of the New Testament? Most people say, oh, I know the answer. It's Paul. And if you said that, you would be wrong. What? You know who wrote most of the New Testament? Actually, Luke did. He is the Gentile. He's probably the only Gentile author of any book in the Bible. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he also wrote the book of Acts, which is the early church history. He ends it in Acts chapter 28 when Paul is being imprisoned at a different time, not this time. When circumstances were a lot more favorable. By the time Luke writes is addressed now, things have gotten harsh and difficult. And yet Luke is with him. Only Luke is with me. They had logged hundreds if not thousands of miles together. You want to see the value of companionship? You find it with a guy like Luke. He's with me. And then look at verse 11. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Anytime you see Mark referenced in the Bible, you want to be reminded of the testimony of God's ability to use failures. Mark is the picture of God being the God of second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth chances. I mean... Mark knows failure in significant ways. I mean, remember, uh, it's the first missionary journey, okay? So you got Paul and Barnabas. And, okay, we're gonna, it's a, stream, a streamlined team. We're going to be kind of like functioning like Navy SEALs. We're going to go into enemy hostile territory. Okay, it's going to be you, Paul, Barnabas. We need a young guy we can kind of pour into, kind of train, showing a lot of potential, maybe got some rough edges. Barnabas goes, man, I got a cousin named John Mark. I think he fits the bill. All right, let's bring him on. And at first, it's all good and cozy. And John Mark, it seems like this is pretty cool. Advancement of the gospel. I'm here with the big boys. This is going down in history. But by the time you get to Acts 13, 13, life is getting a lot more harsher and difficult. And in Acts 13, 13, John Mark says, you know what, boys? I've had enough. And it's recorded that he deserted them. And so Paul and Barnabas 
had to travel alone without their young guy, their protege they were pouring on, pouring into. John Mark decides he's going to go other places. And this was a very painful mistake in Mark's life. I want you to know that if you know failure, you can take great hope from a guy by the name of Mark. Let me ask, anybody here failed at anything? That's what I thought. Okay, just a few. More than in first service. Okay, that's good to have a church with failures because I'm a failure. In fact, we all are. We try to disguise it, but I can assure you, you've messed up tremendously in some very painful ways. You've caused a lot of havoc and a lot of pain. You know failure. Do you know hope and restoration? Well, I tell you what, Mark certainly did. Very interesting. There's a guy by the name of Apostle Peter. You may have run across him at some different times. Guess who pours into Mark? Peter, the apostle Peter, a guy who knew failure firsthand. Remember, Jesus said, Peter, listen, I'm, I'm about ready to get whipped and beat, then crucified. I'm going to rise again, but I got news for you. You're going to deny me three times. Peter said, come on, no way. I'm the leader of the gang. I'm the owner of the 12. There is no one that is going to ever desert you because I'm in charge and I will never desert you. Jesus says, I think you got this one wrong, and I'm praying for you. And sure enough, later that night, Peter denies Jesus three times. And you can read about it in John chapter 21, the resurrected Jesus restoring Peter, building confidence, commissioning him. And so you got a guy who knows failure very well, born into another guy who knows failure firsthand, Mark. In fact, Peter refers to Mark as his beloved son, in First Peter chapter 5, verse 13. And this is powerful. This close relationship that Peter has with Mark. Did you know Mark the failure was given a privilege that only three other men in the world have ever been given? To write one of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. You ever run across the gospel of Mark? Okay, this is a quiz. Anybody know who wrote it? Yeah, this guy. Our failure, that's how our God works. You fail, you screwed up, you've sinned tremendously, you let people down. Well, let me show you the beauty of the gospel and Jesus brings hope, healing, restoration, forgiveness. And Paul says, you know what? I see it and I get it. That's why he says, I want you to tell Mark, pick him up, pick him up and bring him with you because he is useful to me for service. I can depend upon this guy because you're not defined by your failures. You're defined by your savior. And God wants to extend his grace and bring you to the fullness of maturity. And oftentimes, there are going to be some missteps in that process. He goes on to write in verse 12, But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Um, Tychicus is kind of like one of these guys that you can send to difficult situations to relieve others. He sent uh, Tychicus to Crete to relieve Titus. Now he's sending Tychicus to Ephesus to relieve Timothy so Timothy can make his way from Ephesus to Rome. And then he says, verse 13, And when you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. He's saying, listen, when you come, I want you to bring that heavy coat. It's expensive, but it's cold here in my prison. And I want you to bring the books, uh, perhaps even speaking of like the Old Testament scrolls that Paul could use to continue to study, and the parchments, maybe even letters that Paul had written that are now being accepted and used as scripture. Uh, parchments would be like this vellum paper, very expensive, and you'd write important things. It kind of just shows you that Paul, even at the end of his life, was still learning, still growing, and still being used 
by the Lord. He says, I want you to pick them up. But I want you to see this. You see how he's listing these people in some of his final sentences? He's showing Timothy, your legacy is going to be in many respects through the people that you know. You need to have a band of brothers. You need to have comrades in the faith. And if you're like, man, I would love to have a friend. Just don't know how. So glad you're here. I want to just give you real simple. This is how you develop meaningful relationships. You have time together. Open discussion about like meaningful topics like faith and life and love and trials and and morals and values and calling and your work. You need to have mutual respect. Common goals. Shared experiences and encouraging words. If you have the ability to think beyond yourself to encourage others, you're well on your way to have meaningful relationships. And by the way, this will be very important that you do because You see, for a Christian, your legacy will be determined by the priorities of your life and the people that you know. And let me finally then give you the final aspect, the final factor that will determine a Christian's legacy. And that is the power of his presence. Our trials are either going to come through circumstances or people, and oftentimes both. Look at this, beginning in verse 14. Alexander, the coppersmith, did me much harm, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. We don't know if this is the Alexander in First Timothy that was causing all the havoc, but whatever he, whoever he was, he severely harmed Paul. And he's, but look at how Paul responds to this. May the Lord, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. One of the most painful and difficult lessons a Christian needs to learn is that you need to learn to leave it with the Lord. Remember what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, verse 19? He says, hey, don't take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'll repay. You need to learn to leave it with me. I got this. I'm sovereign. I'm in control. You leave it with me. And so do you see what Paul is doing there? The Lord, not me, the Lord is going to repay him According to his deeds, but actually far worse than Alexander personally attacking and harming Paul was that he personally attacked and vigorously opposed the faith. You see that in verse 15, he says, be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. It's one thing to malign the servants of the Lord. It's another to malign the faith that has been once for all revealed in the word. And that's what he's saying. Listen, Timothy, you come here. Listen, I'm his target. You show up, you're next. Be careful. Be on your guard. And it's kind of like he's learning to leave the hurt with the Lord. The slander, the libel, the the misrepresentation, the divisive behavior. Leave it with the Lord. You see how Paul's leaving a legacy? He's showing Timothy, this is how you handle adversity. Learn to leave it with the Lord. What an important lesson. And then verse 16 He is stripped down to nothing. You want to see what ultimate pure faith looks like? It's just you and God. Verse 16. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. In a Roman trial, so Paul is in prison, okay? Um, Prisons in Rome were very different than prisons like in the United States. We use prisons for punitive issues and reasons. 
not so in Rome. In the Roman Empire, they used prisons basically as holding tanks for you to be sentenced, and then whatever you're going to get beat, whipped, uh, whatever, killed, executed, it was taken care of. That's how it worked. And how it worked is prisons were notoriously terrible places to be, and you oftentimes didn't even make it out of prison. And so how it worked is that they barely even gave you the necessities for life because they counted on that you might have a friend or two or a family member that might care about you and show up and bring things like water and food and clothing. And in order to get that to the prisoner, you'd have to bribe the guards. So the guards kind of set it up and they controlled the flow of goods into the prison. And Paul is saying, you know, though, at my first offense, though, no one, not a single soul stood with me. The first one would be kind of like a, like, contemporary, like a contemporary arraignment, where they would establish what the charges were and whether or not a trial was needed. The second, though, would be then to find whether the accused is guilty or innocent. And he says that this first one, where normally someone would come and stand up and speak for you, no one showed up. Now, in case you're like, huh, that's terrible, there's a church in Rome, and he even wrote a nice letter to him. Why, uh, why didn't anybody stand? Let me give you a little bit of the historical background here. So the time right now is about 67 A.D. In 64 A.D., if you remember history, Nero burned down the city of Rome. He wanted to kind of create it more to his liking. He specifically wanted a sweet palace. And so, well, we'll just burn it down and build again. No sweat off my back. And uh, people didn't think too kindly of that. Nero started taking some heat. So, you know, if, you're, if you've done something wrong... And you don't want to be held accountable. What do you need to do? You need to find a scapegoat. And so he's like, oh, I didn't do it. It was those Christians, you know, those followers of Jesus. They're the ones that set fire to this place. And I'm going to take care of it. We're going to make examples out of them. And sure enough, they did. Remember, it's Nero. Uh, this according to Roman history. They actually took Christians. They sewed them up in the skins of freshly killed animals and put them into amphitheaters and into the Colosseum and fed them to wild dogs. And it was, this was like entertainment. Or it was Nero that actually took Christians, dipped them in pitch, fastened them to poles, and then had them lit on fire to light his garden parties. This man was insane. And so that was at AD 64, so now we're at 67. Things may have cooled off a little bit, but boy, to stand with the Apostle Paul, who is well known as this great spokesperson and the one who has been writing a lot of the New Testament, man, you're going to take a lot of guts. And no one seemed to have the fortitude or wanting to have that kind of attention drawn upon themselves. And so they do not show up. And do you see what he said? May it not be counted against them. Verse 16. Where do you get a heart like that? Try Jesus. Remember? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Stephen does the exact same thing right before he dies, and so Paul is doing it here. Difficulties in the world, apart from walking with Christ, could leave you really bitter. But Paul says, may it not be counted against them. I've forgiven. And I want you to know how you can do that. In the deepest hurt and the greatest abandonment, look at verse 17. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. So that through me, the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. I'd been abandoned by friends. But the Lord stood with me. Remember what Jesus said? I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I will be with you. I will give you the grace you need and the moment you need it. Maybe not a whole lot sooner, but I will be there. And he says, 
He was there. He stood with me. He strengthened me. He has the idea of invigorating with strength. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Whether Paul thought, you know, there's a good chance I end up in that Colosseum. And I'm a lion's lunch. Or maybe he was just using it metaphorically to say, but you know what? The Lord rescued me. And verse 18. The Lord... Do you see the power of his presence will rescue me from every evil deed and he'll bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm just like, I'm looking at Jesus. My focus is upon him and I don't care what I have to go through. I know my time is short, but you can burn my body. You can beat me. You can chop my head off, which is what they did. But you cannot touch my soul because it belongs to Jesus. And friends, this is his legacy. You see the gospel When you and I believe that Christ is perfect son of God, lived a perfect life, paid the penalty for sins, rose again, that when we believe in him, we not only have forgiveness of sins, but eternal relationship, that we are inextricably united with Christ by virtue of faith in him. Friends, that is the power of his presence and he will not let you down. And that is Timothy's, what Timothy is finding out from Paul is his legacy. There's a, a gal, young gal by the name of Kayla Mueller. Some of you may be familiar with this. At age 26, having been captured by Muslim extremists in the ISIS deal, uh, she was killed. February 10th, 2015, U.S. officials reported that this 26-year-old, here's a picture of her, aid worker, had been killed by her militant Muslim extremists, part of ISIS. While she was held prisoner as an aid worker, so this graduate from University of Northern uh, Arizona, um, involved in the campus ministry, vital, vibrant faith in Christ, while she was serving as an aid worker, she had been captured and imprisoned. In spring of 2014, she was allowed to write a letter to her family. And the family eventually released this letter, and I'd like to read a little bit to you. It's, it's, a, it's a rather amazing letter. She talks about that she's in a safe location, uh, that she's not harmed, and uh, she then begins to, in a very touching way, apologize for all the grief and suffering her family's going through as a result of her being cap- made captive. And then comes her central proposition, and I want to read it to you. Quote, I remember mom always telling me that in all in the that all in all in the end the only one you really have is god i have come to a place in experience where in every sense of the word i have surrendered myself to our creator because literally there was no one else and she goes on to write by god and by your prayers i have felt tenderly cradled in free fall i have been shown in darkness light And have learned that even in prison, one can be free. I am grateful. I have come to see that there is good in every situation. Sometimes we just have to look for it. Please be patient. Give your pain to God. I know that you would want me to remain strong, and that is exactly what I'm doing. Do not fear for me. Continue to pray as I will for you. By God's will, we will be together soon. All my everything, Kayla. Friends, that is a legacy of the power of his presence. And so Paul then, in his closing words, he greets some of the dear saints, verse 19, greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus, 
Erastus remained on at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. You know, Trophimus is another one of these key guys. Very interesting. Uh, the apostles, they had what is called miraculous sign gifts, the ability to perform miracles. God gave, during the writing of the New Testament, the ability for apostles and certain spokespeople to actually have miraculous gifts to authenticate both the messenger and the message. But all the apostles later in life were not exercising these miraculous gifts because the New Testament was already started to come into circulation. And I can assure you, Paul, who had healed before and actually Trophimus witnessed one of them, most certainly would have brought about a healing for Trophimus because he was in such desperate need of companionship. But that gift was no longer being exercised, for its purpose had been fulfilled. And Paul writes, Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. That's why he says, verse 21, make every effort to come to me before winter. Eubulus greets you, also Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. And how powerful is that? He's in Rome and all the brothers, what? Deserted me. Remember that? They didn't stand with him at trial. But notice what he says. All the brethren, they greet you. There's just forgiveness. There's only one explanation. Jesus and his grace. And so he says, verse 22, The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Grace is the spiritual riches and the resources that we freely have because of our relationship with Jesus. And he says, The Lord be with your spirit. It's the power of his presence. That will be your legacy. And then his final words, grace be with you. In the Greek, that's a plural you. Paul understands, I am signing off to believers everywhere, to the world. Grace be with you. So you just leave the Lord's grace to settle the score, to accomplish the work, to bring us safely home. And so he does. You see, the legacy we leave is determined by the way that we live and the people that we love. There's a guy by the name of Harry Hines of Troy, New York, and he writes of his experiences of going to the tomb of the unknown soldiers. And if you've never done that, at some point in your life, you need to do that. It's, it's powerful in Arlington National Cemetery. And he had done this on multiple occasions, but this time something was different. And let me just read you what he wrote. This time, however, I witnessed something new. When the changing the guard was completed, the commanding officer asked us to remain standing in silence. Sergeant Jennings had completed 27 months, 27 months of his special duty and wanted now to pay his respect to the unknown soldiers. A guard escorted his family to a place of honor. The commanding officer handed Jennings four roses. He approached the great tomb of the unknown soldiers from the First World War, knelt, and placed a rose before it. Then he moved with solemn dignity to the tombs honoring unknown soldiers from the Second World War and then the wars of Korea and Vietnam, kneeling to place one red rose upon each. And then he returned to his commanding officer. He stood before him. At attention with their eyes locked, they locked, shook hands. And then Sergeant Jennings carefully removed his white gloves, returned them. His work was finished. He saluted his officer, greeted his family, and left. See, friends, his duty had ended, and the gloves were off. And this is what's happening here. Paul's life, it's about to end. The gloves are being taken off. He has said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. I have lived my life with no reserve, no retreat, and no regret. And this is my legacy. And you and I have a legacy. And the legacy that we leave is determined by the way that we live and the people 
that we love. And with these final words, grace be with you. The book of his life was closed. The legacy was left. And the baton is in your hand. Let's pray. Lord, what a powerful conclusion to a magnificent work. This book of 2 Timothy. For someone who has come here today who's never trusted in Jesus, would they right now just pray with me and say, God, I turn from self and sin and I believe in Christ. I believe in forgiveness of sin through Jesus' death. I believe in relationship with you through his resurrection. And Lord, for all of us, may we realize this is our generation and we're leaving a legacy. May we do so for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.